The Fanboy, Episode 66. Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles MFR here with you, and this is the 66th edition of the Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? Uh, So it's been a couple of weeks, hasn't it? It's been three weeks, and I want to just start by apologizing for this sort of unannounced little hiatus that the show went on, as did the Revengers podcast. Honestly, it wasn't really planned to kind of be for this long. Uh, I was actually going to be recording two Fridays ago, episode 66, to follow up on episode 65, where I announced the big name change from L fanboy to the fanboy. But uh, then, you know, there was a health issue. I had, uh, I threw out my back two days prior. Then I got an ear infection. It was just a real crap time to be yours truly. Not to mention I was heading into a heavy work weekend and preparing for a big camping trip. So that Friday, I just couldn't get it done. And on that show is when I was going to give you the heads up that I was missing the following week because of the aforementioned camping trip. But alas, I never got a chance to do that. So I'm sorry for leaving y'all high and dry for these last three weeks. Uh, It's been an insane little time over here, but uh, I'll I'll try to spare you the gory details. Uh, But what I will share with you, for long-time listeners, uh, you know, last year around this time when we did the camping trip, when I went with my family out camping, there was was an infamous story that came out of it because, (laughs) uh, how do I put this? I went into the woods ill-advised at 6.30 p.m. with 11 other loved ones, including my wife, my two kids, my cousin, her husband, their two kids, and my two in-laws, who are both older than 60, and our two dogs, and then we promptly got lost in the woods and had to get rescued. Yes, literally rescued by strangers on rowboats, taking my family vaguely in the direction of safety, hoping to find someone late at night who could come back and rescue myself, my in-laws, and our two dogs as we sat on a rock covered with insects in the dark on the side of a lake upstate with no cell service, no supplies, no batteries, no water, no nothing, just basically waiting for someone to come rescue us. And uh, it was was a, a hell of an experience. And uh, I'm happy to report, though, that this year when I went up there, I got redemption. Because, you know, while I've enjoyed that story and I, I actually look back on what happened last year rather fondly because of how we all banded together and what an incredible story it is to tell and what just a great sort of human experience it was to literally literally be trapped out in the wild and to have to tap into old primal instincts and concerns for how do we survive this mess and how do I get my family through this? You know, I I actually generally have fairly positive memories of that whole experience. But this year, I also was kind of like a man on a mission. So I went early in the morning alone with all of the sunlight and supplies that I would need to properly do this hike this time. And I brought my video camera 
because I'm planning a small little, uh, let's say, multimedia project based around that experience. And, you know, it was an amazing like three hours, the whole thing for me, kind of retracing the footsteps of how, you know, we ended up so lost and so stranded and so helpless and filming certain key locations so that I could use it later on for the project I'm working on. And that was just, you know, I, I, it was a beautiful experience doing that this week and kind of putting closure on that experience from the, from the, from the year previous. Because uh, I'm someone who typically tries to just like tackle my fears and my negative experiences head on to try to sort of turn them around and flip them. And going back to, to the scene of that very scary night in a way kind of gave me closure and allows me now to look back on it like almost 100% positively as an experience to grow and as an experience to look back on something that was just like, it's hard to believe that that actually happened, that I actually, you know, I, I'm not going to get into it now, but anyway, that, that's not why you guys came here. But uh, needless to say, it's been an interesting couple weeks here on my end, and I'm still sort of fighting some health stuff. I can never seem to get enough rest to fully sort of uh, recharge the batteries and fully fight off all the different things that, that seem to constantly be trying to bring me down. But alas, there's no rest for the wicked. There's work to be done, and there's been a lot of things going on in the geek and fanboy world to touch upon. We've got San Diego Comic-Con currently happening. We have the big Warner Brothers DC panel coming up tomorrow. We've got I've got some interesting stuff to share with you about the Marvel-Sony Spider-Man deal, since that has been something of a recurring subject here on the show, trying to make sense of who has ownership of what characters and how this extended Spidey universe works with the MCU and how it doesn't. I've got some new insights on that thanks to a conversation I had with an insider. And uh, there's just a lot to talk about. So I guess let's just dive right on in, shall we? So Yesterday, the Wall Street Journal finally released this piece that I teased about weeks ago because I knew that Ben Fritz was working on a piece for the Wall Street Journal based on the Snyder cut of Justice League. And look, I don't have a lot to say on it, really, because, well, uh, I'm about to explain why, but just know I don't have the, you know, there's not a ton to say here because the actual information at the core of the article is basically the same stuff I've been reporting on since last fall. You know, yes, a rough, unfinished cut of the, you know, Zack Snyder Justice League does exist, but the studio doesn't want to invest the time and money to finish it, and they definitely aren't interested in releasing an unfinished rough cut either. So, you know, their gaze is set firmly on the future, and I've been telling you guys that forever. So the piece in that regard was kind of a nothing burger. There wasn't a lot new that it brought to the table. All it really did was cement what I and other reporters have been trying to share with you guys for you know a very long time. But you know, for me, the bigger story with that is how it missed its mark. You know, it could have been so much better, so much bigger than what it was. You know, this this Wall Street Journal piece, it it's just, it's frustrating because like if I had the kind of access that Ben Fritz had working for an outlet like the Wall Street Journal, I would have used this piece to carefully educate the world on that movement, 
explain to those within it, you know, the, the folks who want the Snyder Cut and all that, explain to them why it's just not in the cards. And I would do so in a way that was respectful and sensitive to the amount of time and energy and passion they've poured into all this. And then I would have tried to close it all off, tonally speaking, in a way that attempted to unite the fan base, bring everyone together around the idea that mistakes like that will never happen again, and that the future looks bright under the new leadership of Walter Hamada. And honestly, when I heard about this piece a couple weeks ago, and I heard he was interviewing people, and I heard it was going to come from this hard news outlet, the Wall Street Journal, I got excited. Because like I knew ultimately he you know what what he was going to discover because this is all not really new news. This is what I've been telling you. This is what my insiders have been telling you through me since last December. So I knew that it wouldn't bring new information, but I thought maybe coming from something like the Wall Street Journal, people would take it more seriously than just like a comicbook.com or a revengeofthefans.com or something like that. I thought, okay, this is the Wall Street Journal. This is going to come like a nice hard news investigation. He's going to give the definitive word on it. We're going to be able to finally sort of close this chapter, close that wound and begin the healing process and look to the future. Look at Aquaman and Wonder Woman and, you know, Shazam and everything and kind of, you know, I, I just, maybe it's foolish of me. But I really thought the piece was going to help sort of mend things. Uh, but honestly, you know, it, it was such like a, it was so like filled with this like childish snark and con, you know, like condescension. And it's just like by doing so, he only made matters worse. So, you know, the, the, the piece may as well have not have been written as far as I'm concerned, because it didn't really bring anything new to the table, and all it did was make things worse. I'm sorry to kind of vent on that aspect of it, but to me, that's the part that bugs me, that that's really the notable part of this piece that I've been looking forward to for weeks now. It just, it completely missed the mark. But look, I guess, at the end of the day, the takeaway is, and has remained, that the studio has no plans, desire, or, or has ever seriously considered releasing the Snyder Cut. And listen, I get it. That, you know, that completely sucks for those of you who want it. And as I've said before, I'd love to see it. But, you know, I get why it makes no sense for them at this juncture. And I'll just sit here keeping my fingers crossed... And look, I'll cross my toes. I'm doing that right now. I'll keep everything crossed that one day they do release it in a form similar to like the Donner cut of Superman 2 or all of the different various alternate cuts of Blade Runner that eventually came out. You know, I, I, I'll i be optimistic that that happens one day. But realistically, we have to understand that there's very little in it for the studio at this point to release that. And it just doesn't make sense for them as a business. It doesn't make sense for them as a, as a franchise to keep looking backward and re-examining an old case and reopening old wounds. It just, it doesn't make sense across the board. And I'm sorry if that's hard for you to hear. I, I say this as a friend. I say this as an ally. So please, as always, don't take my remarks on this like I'm trying to belittle you. I'm not Ben Fritz. I'm not trying to belittle the movement. I respect the movement, especially in the way that it went beyond just the Snyder Cut. It was more so a call for artistic integrity, 
a call to ask the studio to like not do this stuff again. That if you're going to hire an artist to tell a story, let them use their vision, let them tell their story and don't micromanage them. You know, and it also took on other elements, too, about, you know, like suicide prevention. And it tried to shine light on what happened in Zack Snyder's personal life and all this. Like, you know, it really did grow beyond this idea of just we want an alternate cut of the movie. And, you know, that's why I believe in what you're going for. I believe in the general bullet points of the movement. But unfortunately for now, we just have to accept that the studio is not going to budge on this. It doesn't make any sense for them to budge on this. And so it's time to really sort of move on. And I'm sorry, but that's just, you know, that, that's kind of it. And barring any further movement on it, I consider these words I've just spoken my final words on this matter until some sort of earth-shattering update comes. Maybe on the fanboy episode, you know, 430 in 10 years when they do release it, I'll be able to talk about it again because now it's a thing. But for now, unfortunately, it's not a thing. So moving right along. Um, on Wednesday, when I returned from my vacation, I had the good fortune, fortune of having some Superman reporting to do with you, to do for you. Uh, it had to do with the state of Henry Cavill's contract uh, and how those negotiations are going and how they've seemingly sort of stalled out. And just to sort of recap, you know, I, 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 I guess I need to apologize or I need to clarify, but like, you know, contract negotiations in general, that sort of stuff, like that's not really my world. I have certain strengths and certain weaknesses in terms of things I know how to cover and how to look up and how to report on in this business. But contract negotiations for me tend to be one of those things that I just look at almost just as a fan, as an outsider, and I try to read the tea leaves and I try and I make certain assumptions. And earlier this year, you know, when Henry started going around beating the drum about his ideas for where he wants to take Superman and all this other stuff, I, I guess, incorrectly assumed that this stuff was done already. You know, especially because I was being told, and, I, and it, this is still the case, that the studio does want him back. They do have a lot of stuff they want to do with Superman. So I'm like, with all of this going around, I just made the assumption that this stuff was done already. I'm like, why would anyone be talking about this stuff in public? Why would all these little things be coming out of Collider? Why would a trade report, because this, this was also going on at the same time as this Ben Fritz Wall Street Journal article for the Snyder Cut was going on, I know that another trade, probably the Hollywood Reporter or Variety, they were working on a piece about Cavill's New Deal. That's how close to being completed the New Deal was, that everyone was with me. Everyone kind of thought it was a foregone conclusion, and now we can kind of just start talking about the future. So a trade was getting ready to do that and to talk about how many appearances it includes and when we can expect to see him next, and then just things hit a snag. But, you know, again, I, I am sorry for kind of characterizing it or in the past or, or for thinking that the deal must have been done because I just thought, you know, why would anyone be talking about this stuff if it wasn't done? But anyway, I, I, I digress. In terms of where things are right now, it looks like they were very, very close to signing on the dotted line and agreeing to all the different terms about appearances, about pay, about whatever. And then things just suddenly kind of stopped. 
And this is not at all unlike what happened last year with Matt Reeves. As I pointed out in my report, you know, Matt Reeves famously walked away from the Batman negotiations and he, you know, and it was a big sort of public black eye for Warner Brothers because you had Variety and others basically acting again like it was a done deal. Uh, you know, I'm telling you, there are a lot of similarities here where it looked all but done. Everyone was talking about it as if it's a mere formality at this point. And then, you know, at the 11th hour, Matt Reeves backed out. You know, and it took a couple of weeks and, you know, his big thing at the time was he wanted full creative control over the Batman, which we'll get to a little bit later in today's show. But, you know, he wanted full, complete con creative control. And at the time, Warner Brothers wasn't sure if they wanted to give him that much leeway and that much freedom. Uh, but ultimately, they caved and gave him that. And then he came back to the negotiation table. He signed the deal. And the rest, as they say, is history. In the case of Cavill and Warner Brothers, what seems to be going on is Cavill's team is trying to position him like he's this hot A-lister that Warner Brothers needs to, you know, basically pay like he's one of the top people. They want him to get a nice big deal where he gets a, a healthy paycheck, a producer credit so he makes money on the back end. They want him to be able to have creative sort of say over the films that he's involved in and how Superman is portrayed. Because if there's something that's been sort of an under, you know, a, a subtext in some of Cavill's comments about Superman and about his first couple of appearances, you know, dating back to fall of last year, the subtext is, you know, he has some very strong opinions for how things have been and how things should be. So he's definitely, you know, he wants a say. And, you know, that that's, that, listen, I get it. I get it. And on his side, I totally understand how they feel like, listen, he's been playing Superman for five years. He's about to have a nice big moment in Mission Impossible Fallout. And his team basically wants to treat him like he's the next big thing. Um, but then, you know, you look over at it from Warner Brothers POV and it's, you know, as I said in the piece, it's like it, it, fair or not, they look at Man of Steel and Batman v Superman and definitely Justice League as films that didn't really do what they'd hoped. And not that they blame Cavill for that, because how could they? He's just an actor in these productions that have so many moving parts. But in general, at the negotiations in terms of leverage, they can totally point out the fact that, hey, you know, listen, we love you. The fans have embraced you in the role. You've done nice work in the role, and we'd love to continue to establish you. But the fact of the matter is... You know, none of your movies exactly broke the bank or, or did as well as we'd hoped. So how can you ask us to suddenly invest all these more resources and all this much good faith in you? You know, Henry, you've got to work with us. Let's, you know, let, let, let's make a Superman movie first that is a huge runaway success that everyone absolutely loves and embraces. And then let's talk about backing up the Brinks truck to, you know, to your driveway and making you, you know, the, the absolute unmitigated face of the franchise. You know, like they, they have their own leverage on their end precisely because the first few DC films were not as successful as they could have been, you know? So I, I kind of understand it from both sides. Now, personally, you know, I think they need to meet somewhere in the middle. 
I don't know that Henry's about to become this runaway A-list megastar because, you know, Mission Impossible Fallout, you know, let's not forget, that's a Tom Cruise vehicle. And at the end of the day, you know, he's just a supporting player in that movie. So I don't think you suddenly go from being in three, you know, Superman appearances that did, you know, pretty good to pretty good to pretty poorly, then have a nice supporting turn in a Tom Cruise movie, and then suddenly demand to start being you know, treated like an A-lister. Now, I get it. Danny Garcia is his manager. She comes from the Dwayne Johnson school of hype, and she definitely wants to treat him like he's the next big thing, and I get it. That's her prerogative. As a product, as a commodity, it's in her best interest and in Henry's best interest to carry himself and enter these conversations as if he is, you know, God's great gift to Warner Brothers and to the role of Superman and like this super hot commodity. But to sort of borrow like, you know, a, a poker, you know, metaphor or a poker analogy, you know, right now, you know, he doesn't have the strongest hand. You know, had had his three movies been these absolute bananas hits that everyone loved and, and there was as much goodwill around him as, let's say, there was around Robert Downey Jr. after Iron Man or after, you know, around Chris Evans after Captain America and everything. You know, if, if he was entering these negotiations with that level of a hand, then he could definitely afford to bet big and be like, you know, everything would be in his favor. But right now, he's unfortunately entering these negotiations from a place of he was in three sort of polarizing in their own way and only successful to a degree Superman movies. So he basically has like two pairs and he's trying to bet the house on a, on a hand that's just two pairs. And meanwhile, Warner Brothers has three of a kind, and you know, and, and three of a kind technically beats two pairs, but it's also not the strongest hand in the world either. It's not a full house, you know, it's not, uh, what do you call it, a straight or anything. It's just three, you know, it's just three of a kind. So again, not the strongest hand can technically win because listen, they own the character. They own the greatest role, the most important star-making role than Henry Cavill has ever had. So they have the leverage of going, well, you need Superman too. So you can't just act like, you know, you can walk away from this unscathed. You know, your career needs Superman. We don't necessarily need you. We want you. We would like to have you stick around because we like the consistency. We like the way the fans have embraced you. So we want you. We don't need you. And you, in terms of where you're at in your career, Superman is really still the best thing you have going on. So that's why it's such like a tricky negotiation and it's a tricky, you know, game of cards to play because Warner Brothers could totally just be like, you know what, take it or leave it, you know, and that's it and walk away. But maybe they maybe they should just let Henry win with his two pairs. Maybe they should just kind of, you know, fold, keep that three of a kind and they're, you know, and just throw it on the table. They're not going to claim it because I think personally with everything going on with Ben Affleck, with all the different like kind of uncertainty of what's going on in the world of the DC universe, I don't think they can necessarily afford to tell Henry to take a hike. So even though they, you know, even though they probably could, and maybe on some business level, quote unquote, should, 
I think they should just take the L on this one. You know, maybe don't give Henry the full amount he's asking for. Try to bring his offer down a tad. But ultimately, I hope they cave, and I think they will. You know, because like I said before, the, both sides want this. You know, that's a big, that's the big difference here between this and the Ben Affleck and Batman situation. While in the Ben Affleck, Batman, Warner Brothers thing has been hazy because both sides have kind of gotten, you know, taken turns being hot and cold on whether or not they want this relationship to continue. You know, Henry's made it pretty darn clear he wants to stay on as Superman. He feels there's unfinished business. And on the other hand, you know, Superman, you know, Warner Brothers is not a fool. They know that Superman is a big deal. And right now, as they're about to lose their Batman, you know, in theory, because I, I really don't think Affleck's coming back and, you know, I, not many people do anymore. You know, I spoke to that... Um, that famous sort of Twitter scooper who's very sort of anonymous and mysterious, Daniel RPK. And he told me himself that he, you know, he he no longer thinks things look good for the Affleck Batman future. And if you recall, you know, a month and a half ago when there was a, a slight glimmer of hope that he may return for, you know, for something, you know, it was Daniel who was there sort of beating the drum on that. And now even he's like, yeah, I don't see it happening anymore. But anyway, I digress. With Affleck seemingly out the door and their Batman having to get soft rebooted and all of the uncertainty that comes with that, you know, right now losing their Superman would be a, you know, would be a bad move. It would be a crappy move, especially since they've already got Shazam coming out, and it's very clear from the promo image that was released this week, which was awesome, by the way, but it's very clear from that promo image that Shazam is trying to build on the existing canon. It is ba it, it, it is very much set in the post-Justice League world, with the Time magazine that references Man of Steel, with the Daily Planet... Um, uh, cover that that establishes that Superman has returned in the Justice League movie. You know, like it, it's very much set in the post Justice League world. So right now, if, if we're trying to continue that canon, if we're trying to continue that mythology and that continuity, it, it makes it that much harder to do it if Affleck's gone, if Cavill's gone. And you've got a filmmaker in David F. Sandberg who very much wants to, you know, link his film to that continuity and even has a scene in mind that they're going to be shooting for Henry Cavill's Superman in Shazam. You know, you could tell that that's part of the DNA of this movie that doesn't come out till next April. So right now, to, to take a really hard line stance and tell Cavill, take it or leave it or we're leaving then, you know, it's, it's, I think it's a dumb move. And I don't think they're going to do that. They want to keep Superman. They want the consistency. They don't want to give the, this impression of, wow, this franchise is in such dire straits that they lost their Batman and their Superman within a span of six movies. Like, what is going on here? You know, it, it, it's not a good look. It's just not a good look. So I hope this all goes well. I'm confident that it will. I really, in my heart of hearts, want to see Cavill get a chance to tell the type of Superman story that he seems apt to tell, that he wants to tell. I can sense from his comments and from some of the comic books that he's referencing and everything that, that's been going on lately that he really, you know, he loves this stuff. He, he, he's, he's right for this role. He's got good ideas for where to go with things. 
I love that, and I, I want to see where this goes. And I want to see him finally get a chance to shine in the way that I think he can, should, and someday will. You know, because for all of the unfortunateness of Justice League with the bad mustache and the bad CG and some of the really sort of clunky dialogue he was given, I did overall enjoy the Superman that returned from the dead. I liked the Superman that we got back. Uh, was, a, was it a little hokey at times? Sure. And yeah, that's, that's something that could definitely be addressed in a well-written sequel, preferably by Christopher McQuarrie. Um, but, you know, I, I actually like the Cavill that returned in Justice League. And I want to see more of that. I want to see my optimistic, hopeful, classic, heroic Superman inspiring others and trying to deal with all the different types of threats in the world, be they philosophical or physical or alien. You know, I, I think there's a lot of interesting story to tell now that he's gone through the arc that he's gone on, and I really hope we get a chance to see it. I think we will. But, you know, for the time being, what this all means, unfortunately, is, you know, I would not expect to see Henry tomorrow at the Warner Brothers DC panel. You know, there had been talk back when the deal looked like it was going to be finalized any second now. You know, there had been talk that I shared with you where they might have him be the one who comes and unveils the Shazam footage. Uh, there had even been talk that had they finalized the deal, maybe they could have given us something solid about the Man of Steel 2 sequel. But right now, considering negotiations have temporarily stalled out as the two sides reassess their next and probably final offers... Uh, I, you know, I would be shocked if we see him tomorrow or have any real mention or reference to him. But, you know, listen, I would love to be wrong. And listen, things change. Who knows? Maybe there was an 11th hour deal reached last night at midnight that none of us know about. And we'll find out all about it tomorrow. You know, who knows? But honestly, at this point, you know, if for my personal expectations to be kept in check and so that I'm not disappointed about what could and should be a really cool day tomorrow for DC fans, I'm just going to keep telling myself we're not seeing Henry tomorrow. There's going to be no significant Superman updates at tomorrow's panel. And I think for everyone's sanity, you guys should do the same, even if it kind of, you know, if it hurts to do so. Um... But okay, and then, so that was Wednesday, and then on Thursday, yesterday, I was able to go to the other member of the world's finest and talk a little Batman, and not specifically just Batman, just all kinds of stuff from the Bat universe. Because, you know, there's a lot of movement on, on the Bat universe right now. Because, you know, I, even though everyone likes to talk about it as if it's the, the Harley Quinn world because of Suicide Squad, you know, to me, Suicide Squad is still an offshoot of Batman because of who those villains are and what they represent and how they came to be and why we even know who these characters are. So to me, I consider all of that Bat stuff. So there, you know, th there was some Bat stuff to share yesterday. Um... So, you know, just to sort of recap, you know, the, they're still sort of pushing forward on this, on this very sort of, how do I put it, uh, unique approach with the next Batman movie, where they're not really going to make a determination one way or the other whether or not this is the same Batman we've seen so far, if this is the Ben Affleck Batman. What they're going to try to do is, you know, really kind of tell the story on its own little island. They're going to set it something like 15 years in the past. 
And then they're going to decide later, based on how well it does and how fans take to it and how everything else works out with the Joker movie and so on and so forth, they're going to determine after the fact if the Batman in the Reeves movie basically ages himself and grows into Batfleck. Or at least, you know, that same Batman in that same continuity. But for now, they're basically rewinding the clock and taking things back roughly 15 years to when he's in his mid-30s to tell a totally sort of standalone story that has nothing to do with the events of Man of Steel, nothing to do with the events of Batman v Superman, and absolutely nothing to deal with what happened in Justice League. And they're doing that so they have wiggle room later on to decide if they want to connect those dots. But really, you know, the, the only sort of solid update is this idea of it being a pseudo-prequel. They're not going to call it that, even though it could become that later, which is so bizarre. But technically speaking, it's like a prequel. You know, it's, it's, it takes place roughly 15 years prior. And all of this talk from earlier this year about how Penguin is going to factor in, you know, Justin Kroll mentioned it a few months ago. Then El Mayimbe, you know, Humberto Gonzalez mentioned it. Uh, I think late last week, you know, all this chatter of Penguin, uh, the, the payoff is that Penguin does indeed factor into this film. He's not the villain. He's a villain. And that's why his name has been coming up lately at the DC Entertainment and Warner Brothers offices, because, you know, the, for the first time since 1992's Batman Returns, we're going to have a live-action Penguin soon. Well, I, I see, I guess, you know, technically what, we had the one in Gotham, right? I, I think he was pretty popular uh, for, like, 15 minutes. But, you know, in terms of cinematically speaking, we're going to have our first Joker in over 26 years in this Batman movie, and that's why his name has been getting whispered about a lot. But again... He's not the main villain, and unlike that rumor that came up earlier this week by uh, Grace Randolph, you know, I'm told it is not going to be Court of Owls either. And this is where, you know, I, I while, while writing about this stuff yesterday, I realized, you know, Matt Reeves and J.J. Abrams have a lot of history together, and they come from a, a similar sort of collective brain trust, and, you know, I think Reeves, I think one of the reasons that there's so much mystery around this Batman movie and who the villain's going to be and the exact direction it's going to take is because I think him and Abrams share that same mindset, that whole like mystery box mindset of we're going to keep everything very, very closely guarded. We're only like a, a, a very extremely exclusive number of people have access to the information, and we will deny, deny, deny until we are ready to reveal it ourselves. Remember what happened with like Star Trek Into Darkness, where he was saying that Benedict Cumberbatch was not playing Khan, and he lied straight to everyone's faces? Because he really does have this belief that mystery and surprise is incredibly important, so you're not going to find out anything until you see the movie itself. And I'm kind of starting to get the sense that Reeves is is sort of applying that same philosophy to Batman, you know? And you know what? Maybe he's right. Maybe he saw all the different leaks, all the controversy, all the awfulness that happened under like Ben Affleck's tenure when he was preparing to make the Batman and how DC's gotten this shoddy reputation for all the different ways that there seems to be another leak every other week and they never come out and address it. 
So maybe he himself has just decided on his own. Like maybe that's why he only gave them 20 pages. Remember that weird story that came out at the end of May that he only gave the studio like the first 20 pages of his script to see if they would approve of that and whatever. Maybe uh, you kind of get the sense that Reeves is taking matters into his own hands. And he's like, since you guys do nothing but leak and squander cool ideas, I'm keeping all my stuff to myself. You know, I just listen, this is that, you know, that that part's not based on anything, but I'm just you know reading the tea leaves here on how secretive things have been and how closely guarded Reeves has been about specifics about the Batman. And I thought about the Abrams connection and I wonder if that's what it is, you know, and you know what? I can't argue with that if that's what he's going to do and he plans to like shock and surprise us with something else next year or some sort of dynamite announcement or literally make the entire movie without telling us much about it, then you know what? All the power to him. You know, I I think I'll take that. After these last few years of incessant leaks and behind-the-scenes drama making its way to the press and half-baked ideas getting thrown out so frequently that it looks like DC's just throwing a bunch of shit on the wall to see what sticks... You know what? I can't blame Reeves for maybe going, you know what? I'm not telling you guys anything. Only my crew and my actors are going to know what's happening. Because clearly you guys don't know how to keep a goddamn secret. <laughs> so, um, and then, you know, other stuff in the Bat world. I mean, listen, this Joker movie's shaping up to the point now where I'm no longer a hater. You know, um... The, the, the cast is rounding out. They released a sort of official premise. They're just calling it simply Joker. And everything I'm hearing, I'm like, you know, this actually sounds pretty cool. And this is coming from someone who didn't mind the Jared Leto Joker. You know, For me, the big crime with Jared Leto's Joker wasn't what we saw. It's what we didn't see. Because we know that there was a lot more footage shot, a lot of scenes, a lot of stuff that never saw the light of day from the original Suicide Squad. And we know that, that Leto was practically taunting Warner Brothers to fire him when he heard how much of his stuff was cut. But from what I saw, you know, I saw potential. It was unique. It was different. It was not necessarily the Joker I would want to see. But I was very intrigued to find out more and see what else was there. So I'm not a Jared Leto hater by any stretch of the imagination. And yet... This Joker movie seems pretty cool to me, you know? And what's interesting with this whole open-ended approach that they're taking is this idea of, you know, this Joker could become the main Joker in the primary continuity. You know, it, it, he very well could since they're going to decide later on what connects and what doesn't. And, you know, there's even this school of thought that, you know, this is going to be their attempt to introduce the idea of this is the proper Joker. You know, that's something that Batman on film, my friends over there have spoken about. It's something that listener and reader Oliver has commented on. You know, he commented on my article about all this and he asked me a question that I'm going to you know, answer for you right now. But, you know, this idea about is this going to be the proper Joker? Are we about to find out that the Joaquin Phoenix one is the real one? You know, like I said, it's open-ended, right? And they're testing the waters, but that's kind of the genius of setting these films in the past. You know, with Joker, rumored to take place in the 80s, and the Batman being set something like 15 years prior to what we've seen, it gives them that flexibility. It gives them the options to cross the streams later. 
And as you can see by the fact that they're also developing a Joker film for Leto, apparently, you know, they're keeping all of their options on the table. And look, you know, it sounds very chaotic to me. I guess in the middle of this, I do need to point out that this, <laughs> I, 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 I hear that the inherent chaos in this and I can hear some of your eyes rolling at the fact that I'm trying to give this approach a benefit of the doubt, but I got to be totally honest. You know, this thing scares the daylights out of me too. This whole like, wait and see how it plays out and then decide later what's canon and, canon and what's Elseworld and what's a reboot and what's a prequel. You know, the whole thing is just, I don't know, man. It sounds like a very strange sort of unfocused way forward, but you know, I... I guess with that said, I've always been down for the idea of multiple Jokers in the mythology. Like, you know, as if it's this mantle that gets passed on. Like, kind of like uh, the Dread Pirate Roberts in The Princess Bride or Zorro, where you find out that there have been many of these kinds of characters over the years and they basically just, they eventually find a successor. So the idea of Phoenix being like the OG Joker, then eventually grooming a replacement, or better yet, being killed by his successor, and having that successor be a young Jared Leto, you know, I, I think that sounds sort of appealing if they decide to eventually go that way. You know, if, 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 if this Joker movie is a huge hit, and Suicide Squad 2 and other stuff that kind of build on the Leto continuity is also a big hit. You could see them eventually sort of going that way, you know? And listen, do we think it's a coincidence that Jeff Johns was at Comic-Con yesterday talking about a new comic book arc featuring three Jokers? You know, maybe they're planting seeds for this. Maybe they really want to get it out there into the pop culture lexicon, into the pop culture shorthand, that there can be more than one Joker. You know, I don't, I, a part of me, maybe it's just conspiracy theorizing, but a part of me feels like it's no accident, it's no mistake that Johns is out there pushing this three Jokers arc while they're also developing a Joker movie and looking into continuing the Jared Leto Joker. You know, I, I don't think it's an accident. I think there's a contingency in there to eventually bring that idea into the movies that Phoenix's Joker is the originator, he's the first, and Leto is the guy who he eventually mentors and trains, who then kills him, puts the makeup on himself, and assumes the position of the new kingpin, of the new Joker. You know, it's just, yeah, it's just an idea. Um... But, you know, what, what's cool about that is, you know, I was speaking to someone about it and I asked, like, you know, have you heard anything about the Robert De Niro rumors about Joker? And they were like, rumor? No, it's not a rumor. He's in the movie. Uh, I asked if it was Carmine Falcone. They said he wasn't playing Carmine Falcone. From what I hear, he's playing some TV personality. Uh, if you look online, you can find the character breakdowns. I actually think that hashtag show just uh, revealed, a, had a report on it earlier today. Um, where they mention the character's name. I don't know if he's a comic book character or something created originally for this movie, but he seems to be playing some TV personality. I think it was like a talk show host or something. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. Don't, don't, you know, don't uh, quote me on it. Go look up the reports. But whatever that character that is, that's apparently the one it's lined up, you know, that De Niro's lined up for. From what I hear, it's not a huge role. So it's not going to be a huge time commitment for him and it's not going to be that much of a detour for a quote-unquote serious actor like De Niro to want to come and do a Joker movie. 
So, you know, so, but that's pretty cool to hear the Joker, you know, that, that De Niro is going to be in it. Now they're talking to Zazie Beats. I don't know if you say it like that. Zazie? Zazie? I have no idea. But uh, Zazie Beats from Deadpool 2 is apparently in talks to be in it. And listen, that sounds great to me. I think she was phenomenal in Deadpool 2. I don't know much about her otherwise. I've never watched Atlanta. I think that's her other claim to fame. But, you know, from everything I'm seeing, it really feels like they're, you know, taking this movie seriously. And they're going to, you know, and it, it, it's all going to be shot and released within a year. That tells me there's a very cohesive, very urgent, very pressing vision involved here. And I can't wait to see what comes of it. You know, I know initially when this was announced, I was very like, what are you talking about? But the more I hear about it and the more I kind of see the way that they could connect the dots the more I'm starting to think, okay, you know what? Maybe this can work. Maybe this can work. But also, you know, DC has to get its branding straight too because if they are thinking of making this Joaquin Phoenix the the prime Joker and then having and bringing him into the overall shared continuity at some point or at least part of the shared canon as part of the history of Leto's Joker, then that kind of shoots a hole in the whole idea of a black label film studio where this is completely a standalone story that has nothing to do with everything else. If you, if you remember when all this stuff with Joker was first announced, the whole idea was, yeah, then, you know, they're going to make this Joaquin Phoenix Joker movie, but it's not part of the main continuity. It's completely its own Elseworld tale. It's even going to be released under an Elseworld banner, like black, like, like black or whatever. Um, but you know, they, they got to figure that part out. Because then that will get confusing. If they launch Joker under an alternate banner and go out of their way to act like this is something different and then later on try to act like, well, no, this actually is part of the main canon, then you're really going to confuse people. So, you know, they, they, there's got to be some more clarity here. I guess, you know, to kind of circle back to my concerns and skepticism, you know, at some point they're going to have to make a push for clarity in their messaging and what their plans are with all of these different movies and and what you know how they will connect and how they won't because having everything so vague and so up in the air you know I that that worries the hell out of me because in general I'm excited about the movies that are coming I'm excited about everything we've been hearing and seeing about them especially this last week or two as we prepare for Comic-Con but in terms of like the messaging and 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 clarity on what the actual plans are and all that sort of stuff like they really got to get their act together and clearly convey to audiences to fans to consumers to media to everyone they have to come out and say here's what's what let's stop with all the guesswork but um oh and all right and there was another part of the report while we're in this little batman corner of things you know about harley quinn you know i hear that warner brothers really is so high on margot robbie's harley quinn that there's this like movement, this this sort of goal in mind that like starting 2020, we're going to be seeing a lot of Harley. You know, apparently like they, they, they it's not that like they're, they're corporately mandating it, but the way that things are evolving and all and the way the scripts are developing and the way the, the, the synergy of these scripts is being developed, it seems like we're going to get a Harley movie once a year for several years 
starting in 2020. So we're talking, you know, um, the Birds of Prey movie. We're talking, you know, in theory, they if they get the script where they want it, you know, Suicide Squad 2. We're talking possibly still the Gotham City Sirens. If that doesn't get completely chopped up and cannibalized and turned into like Birds of Prey 2 or something. We're talking about that Joker, Harley Quinn sort of twisted love story with her and Jad Jared Leto's Joker. Like there's like a Suicide Squad 3. You know, there's all these different things that they have in mind. And... You know, it looks like they're going to be uh, unveiling those once a year starting in 2020. And it's almost like, you know, people inside are practically calling it the Harley Quinn shared universe, which is so weird to me to have like a mini shared universe on the side of another shared universe, which also has standalone black label films that are supposedly not related. This is (laughs) Ah, this messaging issue is going to drive me nuts. I got to stop. They really need to clarify things. But okay, I'm going to use this opportunity, though, to sort of segue. Because while we're talking about, you know, many shared universes attached to larger shared universes, you know, there's some weird stuff going on with Sony and Marvel that has been very unclear for a very long time. And I've always been of the mind that it's in Disney's best interest to just show up to Sony one day with a blank check and go here, whatever you want, we'll pay it. Give us Spider-Man and let's let's stop this arrangement. Because, well, you know, now that I've heard what the arrangement uh, is, I, I'm doubling down on that. Disney, Disney, please fix this. Because when you guys hear how this deal is sort of structured or who gets to do what and who can't, you're going to want to slam your head against a wall. Unless you somehow think this is a good idea, then, you know, all the power to you. But uh, I was speaking to someone and here's what they told me. They said, you know, it's a mess of a deal. You know, if Sony wants, they could use any character from Homecoming in any of their spinoffs without Marvel's permission and by doing so, force them into the MCU. And that lines up with what I've been saying for a while. Because remember, they introduced Michael Mando's, um, you know, Scorpion in Spider-Man Homecoming and they gave him that little post-credit little moment there with Michael Keaton's Vulture. And apparently, you know, that Mando, you know, that that setup for him isn't going to pay off in Far From Home or in another MCU canon movie. It's going to pay off in Silver and Black and in something else or if they eventually go the Sinister Six route. So they're, you know, they're using the MCU to plant seeds for their own thing, you know, and to continue with what I was told, you know, they can't, you know, the the rules dictate that they can't have references to MCU films in their little uh, Spidey World movies, but just having these characters there kind of, you know, in the minds of audiences is going to set them in the MCU. You know, I mean, right now you got to understand it's going to be very confusing when Venom comes out because not everyone knows the inside outs of, you know, who has the rights to what. To the most common fan, like like even like my wife who loves Spider-Man, if I don't explain to her what's going on with who owns the rights to what character, she's going to see, oh, there's a Venom movie. Venom is a famous Spider-Man villain. Spider-Man is played by Tom Holland in Spider-Man Homecoming. So that must mean that Venom is part of that franchise. He's part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That's just going to be the natural assumption. And you kind of can't blame people for having that assumption. So, 
it, it's 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 kind of like what I said on the last episode. We're like Sony has everything to win. Disney has like half to lose because like, yes, they get Spider-Man back in the MCU. They can make him an Avenger. Now they have, you know, as they referred to him on the Fanboy Garage podcast earlier this week, you know, Spider-Man for all intents and purposes is has always been like the king of Marvel. He's the face of Marvel. So, of course, Disney's overjoyed to have him back. But on the other end, if you have Sony making movies that are going to nonchalantly mooch off of what the MCU is doing, but without the attention to detail, without the quality control, without Kevin Feige or someone else making sure that things don't contradict what's going on in their movies, it's going to be a big mess, you know? And then the person I spoke to continued and they said, you know, and they already have planned to include characters from Homecoming and Far From Home in some spinoffs like like Silver and Black and Morbius and all that sort of stuff, and Marvel can't do anything about it, and that's apparently how the you know, the the only sort of thing that Marvel was able to get done in terms of this deal was say, okay, in these little spinoffs you're gonna make, you can't make direct references to our movies, you can't refer like for example. You know, while they were able to do it in Homecoming, because that was done under the MCU umbrella, you know, they were able to reference the Avengers and the attack on New York, and they had Iron Man, and stuff like Venom and Morbius and Silver and Black, they can't make those kinds of references. Like, that, that that's where Marvel was able to draw the line. Like, okay, you do what you do, but you can't reference our movies. And to me, you know, that just sounds like the height of chaos. I don't see how you get, you know, I don't see how Marvel Studios can be comfortable with that. It, it seems like, it seems to me, and listen, you know, I don't want to patronize or act like I know better than Marvel Studios or I would question Marvel and Disney because clearly, listen, they know how to get deals done. They're about to buy Fox. They're one of the most strongest entertainment entities in the world and they've got a fleet of lawyers who look over all this stuff and pour over all these details. So I'm not going to say that they're clueless, but as an outsider, it feels like they were so hell-bent and so focused on the perceived positives of bringing Spider-Man into the MCU that they kind of opened themselves up to a sucker deal here where now Sony is going to totally, you know, they're going to dip their bread in the MCU gravy and soak all that up and make money off it while potentially, you know, d messing up what the MCU has been building so diligently for the last 10 years. You know, and listen, you know, maybe the, the MCU can insulate itself enough that even if Morbius is a disaster, even if Venom suck, sucks great big donkey balls, it doesn't hurt the MCU brand. You know, maybe they're able to do that. And maybe, and maybe I'm not giving them enough credit for being able to do that. But I'm telling you, I'm nervous about that. I'm nervous about these movies being able to mooch off the MCU and what if they suck and what if it starts to overall bring the, the, the whole Spider-Man franchise and, and down and maybe by extension some of the MCU down with it. And, you know, like, like my main concern is because of the fact that, you know, you've got rumors like the fact that Tom Holland could pop up as Peter Parker in Venom. So, like, if the rules really are that lax, and if Sony can really so easily and so directly hitch its wagon to the MCU, to me, that's dangerous. And that is a, that is a fool's deal 
I don't care how happy you are to have Spider-Man back. You can't risk having some hack go out there and tarnish Tom Holland's Peter Parker. You can't risk, you know, it's just, uh, to me, something has to be done about this deal. Because right now, it really just feels like Sony's getting uh, all the benefits and reaping all the rewards of it. But there you go, folks. That's like the lowdown on this Spider-Man deal. You know, the rules are that Sony can use whatever characters are introduced in their Marvel co-productions, in their solo Sony productions, but they can't reference MCU movies in their solo Sony productions. And that's pretty much it. You know, that, 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 that's what this deal, you boiled down to its most simplistic terms, entails. So make of that what you will. Tweet at me what you think. And remember, my, my Twitter handle is I underscore M underscore MFR. Tweet at me if you think I'm way offline about the state of this deal or why it's a lose, like why it's a win-lose for Disney and an absolute win-win for Sony. But this sounds like, to me, this is just ridiculous. And if I see Holland pop up in Venom and Venom ends up just, being a, 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 a complete train wreck. Now, I'm not saying it will, but I'm just saying hypothetically, like let's say Venom is like the X-Men Origins Wolverine of Venom movies. Then I'm just, you know, I'm going to put my head through a wall. <laughs> I just, because like this could be great. And in theory, all these characters really should just be all under the same umbrella. And listen, I know that there are inherent concerns over about the Fox deal, by the way. You know, about making Disney a uh, like a monopoly and whatever. But I really am a firm believer that all the Marvel properties should be the property of Marvel Studios. Not because I think Marvel Studios is like God tier. Um, you know, long time listeners know that I'm very sort of meh on most of the MCU. But in general, I do appreciate that there is a cohesive vision, that the people calling the shots do care about the comic book mythology to a degree, that they care about treating these characters with the proper respect, and that a great deal of thought is put into trying to map this whole thing out so that there is a cohesive vision. So while I may not love all the movies, I do love what's behind them, and I do love the effort that's gone into sort of stitching together this fascinating little tapestry that is the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and which just celebrated, you know, a, a huge high point a few months ago with Avengers Infinity War, which for me is like right up there in the top three of the 19 movies we've gotten so far. And by the way, I know Ant-Man and the Wasp came out. I still haven't seen it, <laughs> so I don't know. I don't really have comments about that. Uh, I don't know if it, you know, really brought things down a notch after Infinity War. I should get around to seeing that. But in general, you know, I brought up Infinity War just to say, like, you know, they're doing some great things over at Marvel. I know I, I, I crap on them sometimes. I know I can sound very sort of uh, like a Debbie Downer or like a hater when it comes to the MCU. And listen, you know, th they're going for, you know, they have their formula. They've isolated who their customer base is, and they're reaping all the rewards for it. They're making money hand over fist. They're building up brands and franchises that are going to exist for years and years to come, and they're selling toys and t-shirts and amusement parks. You know, they're doing great. Just because the movies don't speak to my heart doesn't mean I don't respect what they're doing. Um, 
But listen, I'm just a DC guy, and that's the way it works. But, you know, I, I give the MCU their proper respect for what they're doing. And like I said, aside from the inherent sort of dangers of the Fox deal, and perhaps if Sony were to give Spider-Man back and sell those assets back, I am a firm believer that every Marvel character at this point should just get be under the Marvel Studios banner, and Disney should really stop messing around. They should open up their checkbooks and just try to make this happen. Go to whoever has rights. Go to Universal, who has Hulk and Submariner. Go to Sony with Spider-Man. Go to Fox. Even if, you know, listen, that deal's going to go through. But just in case it didn't, like, go to Fox and just try to buy back the X-Men portion of things. Because right now, I really think we're beyond the point of this, like, you know, X-Men is not Marvel. but And Sony, uh, Spider-Man is not Marvel either. I, I just, I, I think it's, um, I think we're beyond that point. I think we're beyond the nuances of those deals and having to explain to outsiders who has the rights to what and why it's okay that this studio does this, but how it has no bearing on how that studio does that. You know, I just, I think we're beyond that point. I think Marvel Studios and Disney should just break the bank, get all these characters, and let's be done with all of this guesswork and letting other studios mooch off of their library. That's it. Simply put. Um... So now, you know, I, we're in the middle of SDCC, so I kind of have to talk a little bit about expectations for tomorrow, because tomorrow's going to be a big day. Tomorrow, you know, it's, the funny thing is, it's big no matter what. If they just stick to purely what they've announced, tomorrow's going to be huge. If they add some surprises, it'll be huger. <laughs> is that even a word? Huger? I don't know. We just made up hashtag huger. But anyway, um... You know, yeah, if they add surprises, that's all. That's just like a cherry on top. But folks, let's please not get greedy here. Just based on what they've already announced is definitely happening. Tomorrow is going to be a can't-miss panel, and I'm happy that I have a Revenge of the Fans uh, correspondent who's going to be there, uh, hopefully, and in live tweeting and sending in pictures and all that sort of stuff. So I hope you guys are following at RevengeOTFans on Twitter. Um, so I'm very excited about this panel because listen, you know, don't be greedy. All right. There's going to be a bunch of time, you know, a heavy emphasis on the DC universe streaming service. Then there's going to be the big centerpiece, the Aquaman trailer. That's going to be the big thing. Cause what I, you know, I, I get the sense that this isn't going to be one of those things where, you know, comic con gets one trailer and then the internet gets another. I have a feeling that you know they're going to use tomorrow to formally and officially put the world on alert that Arthur Curry is coming for you this December and Aquaman is going to be a cinematic event that you cannot miss. You know, if, if you look at all the promo images they've been releasing through Entertainment Weekly, if you look at the different things that have come out this week in the lead up to the panel tomorrow, they're not messing around. This is going to be an absolutely epic action adventure with interesting characters at its heart and a, and, and a mythology that we have yet to really see. And by the way, to kind of like a side note, you know, I, I like how these DC characters, the DC movies really try to go bigger. They really, you know, it, it goes back to that old mantra of like in Marvel, you know, it's it's humans pretending to be gods and in DC it's gods pretending to be human or something. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but like, you know, one of the things I loved about Wonder Woman 
is the way it sort of linked itself to Greek mythology and Zeus and Ares, the god of war and all that. Like, you know, I, I love the idea of taking these superhero stories and showing how like in, a, in, in some way, shape or form, you're conveying that like these types of stories go back thousands of years. These ideas of these gifted gods and demigods who come out to save us, who try to restore the world and, and give the world meaning and all that sort of stuff. Like I love when they aspire to be something bigger, to be something grand and majestic and beautiful. And... You know, so when I think of Aquaman and the fact that, you know, it's going to embrace the whole Atlantis mythology and all that sort of stuff, like I, that, that's another sort of through line that I'm seeing here where I feel like Aquaman could be like the next Wonder Woman, where it just feels bigger. It feels important. Um, while also bringing the, the, the requisite thrills that James Wan can bring and, and, and bringing the charms that we know Jason Momoa has in the role. Because, you know, he's won me over from that one moment that he had in Batman v Superman to what he did in Justice League, which I've now seen three different times. You know, I like his take on Aquaman, his like, quote unquote, Aqua bro. I like it. And you can tell from the what they're going for. They're going for like Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. They're going for Star Wars. They're going for something that feels like a great epic action adventure with a likable, lovable scoundrel at the heart of it. I really, I think Aquaman is going to be phenomenal. And I think that's the big centerpiece tomorrow. You know, we're going to have James Wan. We're going to have probably Jason Momoa there in person. Probably the rest of the cast, really, if they're smart. And we're going to see a jaw-dropping trailer. And that is the centerpiece of what's happening tomorrow. But then they're not even stopping there. Because we know that David S. Sandberg, David F. Sandberg has already said that. They're bringing Shazam to Comic-Con. And they're going to be showing like a sizzle reel there. Then there's also, and by the way, I have a feeling that the Shazam stuff is going to be like tailor-made. Like, like they're going to pick footage and imagery that's like tailor-made for Comic-Con types. I think it's going to be just like that image they released in Entertainment Weekly with all the different Easter eggs on the background. Like they're going to do, they're going to totally play to the home field audience there at Comic-Con where everyone loves a good Easter egg and everyone loves comic book references and callbacks to older movies. I have a feeling that like, you know, that that promo image of Freddie and Billy in front of all those magazine covers and action figures, I have a feeling that whatever they show tomorrow of Shazam is going to rely heavily on that element of nostalgia and humor and connecting fans to why they love these characters to begin with. So I have a feeling that like if Aquaman is going to be goosebump inducingly action adventure craziness, Shazam is going to be filled with humor and nostalgia, at least at the panel tomorrow. That's the element they're going to bring. And then they're going to bring out, you know, arguably the biggest star of the DCU, which is Wonder Woman. And they're going to show us something from Wonder Woman 1984, you know, and maybe maybe they, they'll, ha they'll have Gal Gadot and Patty Jenkins there in person. Maybe they'll take a break from filming, which is currently happening. You know, maybe they'll have Gal walk out on stage and reveal something cool and unknown about the movie, maybe some concept art or something like that, you know, but I, I think if they're smart, they're going to do that. Now, in terms of like surprises, like I said, I don't need any because just based on everything I've just described, this is going to be a panel that makes my head explode. 
So I don't need surprises. But of course, everyone wants to talk about surprises. What else could there be? There's rumors of like a fourth movie getting a nice spotlight shown on it tomorrow. So while we're, you know, while we're in this space, let's do a little spitballing about what I think the likely surprises could be. Um, and I think it's one of two things. I think we may get some stuff from Joker and or Birds of Prey. Since both of those movies are both expected to film within the next like six months or so, you know, we Joker's supposedly going to be filming this fall, and reports have Birds of Prey starting early next year. I think I saw like January or February somewhere, and that's already only like six months away. So these two movies are pretty close to going before cameras. That means that they have stuff to show. You know, they have logos, they have concept art, they have castings they can reveal. You know, so for example, I think it'd be cool and, and timely maybe to like confirm that lineup. You know, the lineup that got revealed earlier this week that first, you know, Grace Randolph took a, a crack at, but then Umberto came out and kind of gave the definitive actual scoop on what it is. So maybe, you know, have, have that lineup get confirmed, show us the logos or the concept art. Maybe if you've already secretly cast some of these characters, you have those people come on stage or have Joaquin show up and say some words as Joker. I mean, how, how, how freaked out would people get if like Joaquin shows up and he delivers similar to when they announced BVS and they had uh, the actor who played General Stanwyck. I forget his name right now, but when he came out and read that monologue from The Dark Knight Returns and people lost their minds, imagine they just have Joaquin Phoenix come out and give us a tease of what his voice is going to be like and he does a monologue from like The Killing Joke or something like that as the Joker. Like that would, people's heads would just fall off their heads if they, I'll fall off their necks if they did something like that. And for any and all Birds of Prey stuff, all you need to do is have Margot Robbie come out and show us some concept art or something minimalistic and fans will lose it. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of what I think. I think, you know, no matter what tomorrow, it's going to be big because they're going to be talking DCU. They're going to be talking Aquaman. They're going to be talking Shazam. They're going to be talking Wonder Woman 1984. And that's really all we need or in theory should need unless we're being very, very greedy. Um, and there might be a surprise or two. But uh, again, if there are no surprises, this is still going to be a huge day. But, uh, okay, I see the time. I kind of have to wrap things up. I got a bunch of things going on today, as usual. But uh, let me just touch on the Titans trailer and answer a question that came in from, uh, from Oliver also. Um, so I saw the Titans trailer. I actually saw it today, which is a day after everyone else did and everyone else had their reactions. Uh, so I saw it this morning. It was the first time I was able to just kind of sit down, get into a zone, and just be able to give it my full undivided attention. I, I don't like to half watch things because then I feel like I, I can miss the nuances or kind of miss the whole point of why a trailer or something has come out. So I this morning, I finally cleared the time. Everyone was still asleep. I sat down on my computer. I watched it. And... Eh... I don't know. I th th There's something about the aesthetic that one of my Twitter followers, I think, hit the nail brilliantly on the head. It, it, it looks like Riverdale. It looks like a Riverdale-type CW angsty teenage drama with some teenage mystery and intrigue thrown in uh, combined with, like, 
you know, uh, Netflix's Punisher series where, you know, it's got the violence and the, the cursing and it tries to be like abrasive and in your face. Uh, but I don't know. It, it, I, you know what my big takeaway was? I don't think I'm its target demographic. I think that's kind of my main thing. It didn't really move the needle for me. I'm still curious and I'll watch it, but I don't think I'm who they're going for. I think based on the dialogue and the, the, the sort of way that they're tackling things, I think they're going for like teenagers. They're, I think they're going for, a, not kids obviously with fuck Batman, but you know, I think they're going for a younger demographic. They're going for that sort of edgy, I have angst and I, I, I'm, I'm mad at the world and here's my, you know, he, here's my secret plight. And Titans will be the type of allegory for like young people who get to, you know, take control of their lives and, and, and show, you know, try to get out of the shadows of their mentors like Batman or in real life, their fathers or whatever. You know, it seems like like the, the overall subtext of what they're going for, the feel is more aimed towards a younger group than my 35 year old ass. Uh, and not that that's bad, not that that's wrong or not that like, you know, if you're my age or older, that if you're interested in it, I'm not passing judgment on you for being interested in it. Uh, I'm just saying, I think that's who they're going for. Like, it didn't seem like a show that was made for me. It seems like a show for young people who are filled with angst and want an outlet for that angst. That's just kind of, yeah, that was my takeaway. I think that's who they're trying to court. They're trying to get the Riverdale fans, or even the Supernatural, you know, they're going for that sort of CW-ish audience, um, which is fine. You know, that's all the power to them. It's just not for me. Um, and now, so I got a question from Oliver about, you know, I, I covered in that Batman report that the Suicide Squad 2, you know, the in terms of the script for that, you really got to take anything you hear about that film with a grain of salt because right now it, it, it got scrapped. You know, the, the, the original script got scrapped and when they hide, when they announced last month that new hire, I think his name was like Todd Staswick or something along those lines, when they announced the new writer, you know, part of that announcement or not, I mean, they didn't say it, but part of the reason for that hire was because they were basically going back from scratch. They were starting all over again. And so the question that I was asked was, why was the script tossed? And is it still on schedule to shoot after Birds of Prey as rumored? Um, you know, he, he, here's what I think. You know, I think the reason it was scrapped is very simple. I think it's because the project began its life during a very different era at DC. You know, Gavin O'Connor was hired in September of 2017, almost two months before Justice League came out. And so the initial ideas, his initial pitch, you know, the, the initial idea for what the story would be probably, you know, was tied into whatever the plans were at that time. But if you recall, if you've been paying attention, you know, ever since Justice League came out, everything's been getting rethought. You know, Warner Brothers shuffled a lot of things around after Justice League. They brought in Walter Hamada in January to write the ship. And everything about the old plan has been second-guessed and rethought and realigned. So I think the old script, the one that, that Gavin you know, perhaps came to them with or the pitch he gave them, I think it got tossed because it became a relic. You know, it hadn't even been filmed yet, and it became a relic from another time. So I think they hired this new writer 
to help you know make the story fit more in line with what the new plans are now that they have a stronger sense for what Matt Reeves is going to do with Batman, for what they want to do with Joker, for what's going to happen with Birds of Prey, and what's going to happen with Batgirl. And now that they have a stronger sense of what that is, it makes sense to like, all right, so now let's let's build our story based on what we know now, as opposed to sticking with a script that was written at a time when the plan was going to be totally different where the landscape that Suicide Squad 2 would exist in was going to be a very different landscape. So to answer your question, Ali, you know, Oliver, I think that's why it got tossed. As for whether or not it's still on schedule to shoot after Birds of Prey, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I, it, it all depends on how the script comes together and how the studio feels about it. I don't think, I, I, it sounds funny to say this because the, the film comes up so often. And because Suicide Squad 2, despite being critically reviled and ultimately sort of forgettable, even amongst the fandom, uh, you know, it made a bunch of money. And it sounds funny to say this, but I almost get the sense that Warner Brothers can take or leave the Suicide Squad 2 sequel. Like, I, I you know, the, like Suicide Squad 2. Because, um, I, I don't know. It, it's just a sense that I get. I get the sense that, like, they won't be heartbroken if they don't get to follow up on that. As long as they have good Harley Quinn movies coming out, as long as people are excited about Birds of Prey, as long as people, you know, embrace the next Joker movie, as long as people are getting excited about things like Aquaman and Shazam and Wonder Woman and eventually Batman and Superman and all that sort of stuff, I don't think they're going to bat an eyelash if Suicide Squad 2 never happens. So that's why in my eyes, I don't think there's like a, a rush or a priority because they're already getting Harley. Harley was the big thing that they wanted to get out in front of audiences and they're going to get that with Birds of Prey. So Suicide Squad 2, to me, in, in my eyes, I think the way it works is if the script comes together and it's absolutely amazing and it helps them set up where they want to go and all this other stuff and it works really well with their other sort of plans for that corner of the DC universe, then yeah, we'll see it. But if that script never really comes together, I can see this thing staying in limbo or just getting scrapped altogether in the months or year to come. So, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily pay attention to anything about the scheduling for this. Because as you can see, the film has already been bumped. You know, there was a time when Suicide Squad 2 was going to come before Birds of Prey. And Suicide Squad 2 was going to film this summer. That's what all the trades were saying. Earlier this year, you know, Hollywood Reporter and Variety were all saying that, oh, Suicide Squad 2 films this fall. And then what happened? Joker took its spot. And then did it, did it take the next slot? No. Because now Birds of Prey is filming in the next slot. So as you can see, Suicide Squad 2 keeps sliding lower and lower on the totem pole. It is not a rush priority sort of project for the folks at DC Entertainment. And I can't blame them. So there you have it. I think that just about does it for episode 66 of the Fanboy Podcast. It feels really good to be back after three weeks away. You know, I, I, I'm a big believer in uh, everyone needs to talk about what's going on in their brains, about the little hamster wheels that they're on. They need a release. You know, me and my best friend, Colin, you know, I always go to him and we both come to each other where it's like, dude, I need to speak to you at least once a week or else I start getting weird. 
That's how we put it. Dude, I'm getting weird. We got to hang out soon. Because, you know, I'm a firm believer that if you're not out there actually interacting with people or talking or letting things off your mind, you can drive yourself slowly insane. You need to interact with other humans. And the funny thing is, not having this outlet, this show, for the last three weeks has been like hard for me. I have felt myself getting weird. I missed you guys. I I needed to unload all this stuff and to talk about this stuff because it's on my mind, perhaps a a bit too much. You know, even when I'm out there camping, even when I'm disconnected from the rest of the world, I'm thinking about freaking superheroes and movie slates and directors and writers and directions I hope for and contract negotiations and costumes. Like, you know, this stuff occupies so much of my, of my, uh, mind space that not being able to sit down in front of this microphone and share what's going on gets me all like backed up and I get all, you know, I start feeling weird. So this, this ritual, this routine of having this over the course of the last 65 episodes, it's important for me. So it feels great to be back. It feels good to finally just sort of unload all these things that have been on my mind about this stuff and to share with you the little bits of bochinche and insight that I have on all of these interesting stories. I hope you'll continue to follow the Fanboy Podcast. Subscribe, tell your friends, leave me reviews on Apple Podcasts. You know, retweet the episodes. Let me know if there's any questions or things you want me to tackle on later episodes. But all I can say right now is it was a blast to do this. It feels good to be back. And until next week, life is chaos. Be kind and adios. Adios.